And that's a song that ought to be continually on our lips and continually in our hearts. The song of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He is good. He is good indeed. I'm glad to be here with you this morning to open the scriptures, to listen to what God has to say to us this morning. How many sermons do you typically listen to a week? Some of you are like, one because I have to. How many sermons do you typically listen to a week? I know that there are different people who listen to different messages and different preachers. I would encourage you to listen to a sermon a day. Uh, this is not an apple a day keeps a doctor away, but you can never be fed enough. You eat every day. You're fed spiritually every day, and there are a number of pastors out there who will proclaim the Word of God faithfully exposing the truth of Scripture. I would encourage you to listen to a sermon a day, but today we're going to have a sermon on a sermon. We're going to look at the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So go ahead and open your Bibles there, if you will, and we'll take some time to at least begin to look at the message that he preached. And I don't want us to underestimate the significance of this. I want you to understand, of course, the context of this. Jesus has been with his disciples. He's called them. He's proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. And they have put their faith and their trust in them. They left their homes. They left their businesses. They followed after him. They were trained by him. They taught him. They saw the miracles that he did that testified that his testimony was true, that bore witness to his credibility. They heard him expound the scriptures and they heard him delivering truth from his mouth. He came to please God and in pleasing God, he lived righteously, fulfilling all of the requirements of the law. And then he goes to the cross and innocent, paying the penalty for the guilty, the precious lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And the disciples got this. They understood it. It was a tumultuous time. It was an emotional time. And there is the one they've been following, the Savior, the Messiah. They have no doubt of that. And yet... He's crucified. And he had told them that he would be, but it just it didn't sink in. To hear it is one thing. To see it is something else. And there it is. And they were really disoriented for a period of time. Early on the morning of the third day, they go to the tomb, the ladies, and then they come back and they get Peter and John. John's faster. And they run to the tomb and they find the tomb empty. He's resurrected. That which he foretold has come true. That which he prophesied is now a current reality. And he appears to them and he shows himself to them. And this is at the Feast of the Passover. And over the next 40 days, he makes appearances to the disciples. And when he's there with them, he talks to them about the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? He talks to them about God's plan. What God has been doing. What God is doing in the Lord Jesus Christ. What God is going to be doing in them. What God is going to ultimately be doing. And Luke picks up his story in the in the book of Acts. And he tells the story of how Jesus in this last conversation with the disciples prepares them. He prepares them for a, 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 a different relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's already told them in the upper room before the crucifixion. And he reiterates it here that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon them. And so it's not that the Holy Spirit is all of a sudden something new. The Holy Spirit was one of the agents of creation. The Holy Spirit has been active throughout history, but now how mankind relates to the Holy Spirit is going to be new. Like he said in John chapter 14, you know him for he has been with you, but he shall be in 
you. And so we have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, an indwelling, a sealing, uh, a, sealing a, a filling. And we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes as we look at Peter's sermon. And then he says, once that happens, you shall be witnesses to me. And so he gives them a new commission because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because of where we are between the peaks of prophecy, if you will. The first coming of Christ foretold, the second coming of Christ foretold. Jesus now brings clarity in the past. You could just see the mountain peaks, and they did not know that there was a gap between the first coming and the establishment of the eternal kingdom and the second coming. And now that we're at the first mountain peak, Jesus says, here we are. The first coming is complete. The Lamb of God has been slain. His blood has been shed. Redemption is possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Those before my coming, looking forward by faith. Those now, looking at this event by faith. Placing trust. But there is a second coming. That's why the disciples said, are you coming to establish your kingdom now? He said, no, I'm coming. You don't know when. I don't know when. The Father's going to tell us when. And there will come that day. But now you're in the in-between. Now you're in the age of the church. And he established his church. And he gave them, as a church, a commission. He changed it. Sure, Jerusalem, or the Jews were to be a light, but now they're to be active witnesses. They're to go into the highways and the hedges. They're to proclaim the goodness of God, the good news of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the reality that there is one way to be saved, to be made right with God, and that is through the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, by repenting of sin and placing your faith in Him. And that's, that's our hope. And so He sends them back to Jerusalem where they meet and where they pray. And as they're praying some days past, probably around 10 days of extended prayer and fellowship, and 120 or so gathered together, then all of a sudden we see in Acts chapter 2 that God supernaturally establishes his church as jesus said in matthew i will build my church god supernaturally establishes his church with the outpouring of the holy spirit and and he gives signs there are audible signs things that they can hear a sound as of a mighty rushing wind i should have gotten austin to do some sound effects for us at this point it's like a train (laughs) A mighty rushing wind. And then there are visible signs. There are tongues as of fire descending. And not only were they descending, then they come and they descend upon those who are gathered. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit, not just on one, not just on two, not just on a special one, but all of God's people who were gathered there in obedience. And there were people in Jerusalem... Again, following the Feast of the Passover, there were people from all over the world. There were devout Jews who had come to celebrate the Passover, who had made the journey, the trek, who were at least temporarily making their dwelling in Jerusalem. And we read last week the list of countries, of nations, of languages that they had come from. And there were not only the devout Jews, but there were the proselytes, those Gentiles who were participating in the Jewish religion by conviction, were a part of what was taking place. Now, many of these Jews had not only relocated to those locations, but they had been raised there. That was their culture and that was their language. And God gave the disciples another sign. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was evidenced, given credibility by something else. A language that these Galilean fishermen had never studied. All of a sudden, they were able to speak. And everybody who was there was able to hear this blessed message of the kingdom of God 
in their own language. We'll pick up here in Acts chapter 2 with our text. When they heard this, by the way, I'll back up just a couple of verses. They were amazed and perplexed, saying, what does this mean? Others were mocking and said they're filled with new wine. So even this message, there were some that were receptive and there were some that were rejecting and mocking. Our text today, we begin in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. They had no public address system. We know from the context of this, there were at least 3,000 there. That number is probably half of the number that, that was there. There were probably five, 6,000 people in the crowd. And Peter, his public address system was his voice. And again, the Greek words are stronger than the English words. He didn't just lift up his voice. He, he was the shouting preacher. All right? So that's biblical. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Peter lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, all right, crowd that are gathered, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. Listen, it's important not only that we are speaking, but you ought to be paying attention. For these people, the 120, are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. By the way, if you're wondering what that is, that'd be 9 o'clock in the morning. The day starts at 6 on their time, so it'd be about 9 o'clock a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and I love this. A good, the first sermon, the important sermon, the sermon who, if you look just at the results or the fruit of the message, is one of the most significant sermons ever preached in the history of the world. 3,000 saved. 3,000 plus. And he begins by immediately going to the text of Scripture. He goes to the Word of God. Now, the New Testament has not been written. Luke hadn't written this yet. The Gospels have not been written down on paper yet. That's not been recorded. Paul hadn't even been saved yet on the road to Damascus. Much less has he not written anything. And so, Peter goes to the Word of God. He goes back to the prophet Joel. Now, do you remember anything about Joel? Joel... Jehovah, El, Elohim. God is God. Jehovah is God. That's his name. The, the prophet Joel is one of the minor prophets. He's called a minor prophet, not because his prophetic utterance is somehow less, but simply because it's short. Joel's prophecy in our Bible only has three chapters. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Not a whole lot is known about Joel, but his prophecy is the word of God through this man of God. That was recorded. Interesting that Joel was prophesying during a time of distress in Judah. There had been a locust, a plague of locusts who had eaten the crops, and there was a famine. And Joel gives a warning in his prophecy. We'll get more into this hopefully in a little bit, depending upon time. But in his prophecy, he says, We are suffering because of the locust. And yet, this is nothing compared to what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. When God comes back to punish sin. When God comes back to rescue His people. And God comes back to judge the earth. It's called the, well, we'll hold off on that. The prophet Joel. He goes to the prophet Joel. And here's what he says. Quoting from 
in our Bibles, Joel chapter 3, I mean chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What's he saying in this passage of Scripture? Joel has prophesied what you're seeing today. What Jesus just told us, the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. Joel had already prophesied centuries before. And what you're seeing is the fulfillment of prophecy. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All without distinction. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants. This isn't relegated to some class of people. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This demonstration, supernatural demonstration of the Spirit's power. Is not limited to just a select flu. Few, even on servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirits and they shall prophesy, which is simply to speak forth, to proclaim the word of the Lord. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And now we have a transition and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Doesn't sound like a good thing, right? Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. Now when he says the day of the Lord, everyone there who was a Jew, everyone there who had Old Testament understanding knew exactly what he's talking about. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. The day when a righteous God comes to exercise his righteous judgment against the sinfulness and rebelliousness of mankind. Before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. Why is it magnificent? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you're outlining Peter's sermon, that's point one. There are three in his sermon. Again, it's biblical, just in case you're wondering. Three points. He, this is point number one, and this is as far as we're going to get today. We're not going to look at the next section next week when we focus on what he focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ but I want us to start where he starts and that is not only with scripture not only with scripture prophecy being fulfilled but what specifically is the prophecy and it is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and we need to see the Holy Spirit at work here and how the Holy Spirit is working and has been working and so that's the first point on your outline we as we are looking at this first sermon at the launch of the church, we, as we are looking at being the church that God has established and the church that God would have us to be, we need to recognize our role and our responsibility by, first of all, treasuring the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? And there's so many, there's so much that I want us to, to look at this morning. But let's just start with who's preaching. This is Peter. This is Peter. He's a Galilean fisherman. Yeah, he's probably an entrepreneur. Yeah, he's probably just one of the uh, kind of the country less educated, even though there's nothing wrong with his brain. And I'm sure he's conscientious and a good man. But Jesus came to him and called him and said, Once you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. He raised the bar. 
when the Lord, when Peter came to him and followed him by faith. And Peter says later, we gave up all that we had to follow you. And Jesus says, absolutely. He affirms that. He doesn't correct him. You did indeed, and you shall be rewarded. As a matter of fact, they're told that they will sit on the thrones over the 12 tribes in God's eternal kingdom as the apostles, as those who have been appointed by Christ to this role. However, what happens when Jesus is crucified to Peter's testimony? Do you guys remember the account there in the garden outside of Caiaphas' house? A maidservant, a girl, says, I, you sound like a Galilean. Aren't you one of those followers of Christ? And Peter denies and even curses. Nope, not me. I just didn't want to be identified with him. Jesus had told him that would happen, that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed in the morning, depicting sunrise. We also see Peter just not long after in hiding and then deciding, I'm going to go do what I know to do. I'm going fishing. And I love the fact that in our weakness and our failure, when we aren't singing about the goodness of God, when we're wondering if God is really good at all, when our world has been turned upside down and we don't know what to expect, when we're facing circumstances and we are looking at the circumstances rather than the God who oversees the circumstances, And we're just at a loss that he doesn't leave us there. He comes to us. Jesus went to the shores of Galilee where he first met Peter, where Peter had first bowed to him in the boat. And Jesus calls out and Peter recognizes him and jumps over the side of the boat and swims to the shore. And there Jesus and Peter have breakfast. (laughs) Again, men's breakfast Friday morning is biblical. We'll have fish. No, I'm kidding. But he cooks a meal, and he interacts, and he opens his heart, and he says, Listen, you've been a fisherman. You're not a fisherman any longer. You're a shepherd. Feed my sheep. And he restores Peter. He forgives him. He recommissions him. And then when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, here's this loudmouth country bumpkin, not clear on what to say, always running off and jumping off and putting his foot in his mouth and doing these different things. And all of a sudden, he is the one that is chosen and anointed by the Holy Spirit of God to proclaim this beautiful and coherent message. Do you think he had been to seminary class to learn how to prepare a sermon? Do you think it was on his calendar this Friday morning at 9 o'clock I'm going to be preaching in the temple square? No. His heart was filled with the Holy Spirit. His heart was filled with the message and God had been preparing and nurturing his heart. And what we see throughout the Acts, throughout the New Testament, is one of the aspects of what the Holy Spirit does when He comes to indwell us and when we are filled with the Spirit is He gives us boldness. Boldness to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldness to proclaim Him. Boldness to care enough about people to talk about the things that matter for eternity. We need to treasure what the Holy Spirit does in us and through us. And just to, again, I want to... I think this is worthwhile. Go ahead, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And I didn't warn anybody that we were going to do this. But we're going to look at Ephesians. And we're going to kind of count down Ephesians. We'll go to Ephesians 3 first, and then Ephesians 2, and then Ephesians 1. But in Ephesians chapter 3, we see something else that's revealed to us about the Holy Spirit's work. Paul is writing in prison. And he says, For this reason I, Paul, this is Ephesians 3, 1, a prisoner for Christ Jesus... On behalf of you Gentiles, again, the prophecy we have in Joel relates specifically to the people of God known as the Jews. And Paul says, this is for you Gentiles as well, 
He said, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, God's given me a, a calling to bring the gospel to you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. What mystery? We'll get to that in just a moment. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into what? The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery? The mystery is God's plan of salvation revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply for the nation of Israel, but for all who will repent and turn their lives over to Him in faith. For all who will respond to Him, Jew and Gentile alike, this is the mystery revealed, the gospel that God has given to Paul that he's declaring to the Gentiles. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's the mystery. There's the mystery revealed by the Holy Spirit. We need to treasure the fact that the Holy Spirit spoke through men of old, spoke through Joel, spoke through the other prophets, that the Holy Spirit has cultivated our hearts, convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit makes this illumination to us and takes, makes blind eyes see, deaf ears hear, changes hearts and lives and makes people sensitive to the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that it includes us, that it includes the Gentile. Going back up to the very end of chapter 2, just picking up in verse 18, Through Him we both have access in one Spirit, capital S, to the Father. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, in one Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, we have access to the Father. So then you, the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Wow. You're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus being himself, being the chief cornerstone. There's so much richness here. Listen, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Gentiles couldn't even go into the Jerusalem temple. There was a court of the Gentiles that was on the outside, and now he's saying all that wall has been completely broken down. Look at the work of the Holy Spirit. In him, verse 23, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit has an ongoing work, not only convicting and not only illuminating and open our eyes, but He has this ongoing work in our life. And that's where you get to Ephesians chapter 1, if we just pick up in verse 15 for a brief look at this prayer. For this reason, Paul says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit. Again, capital S. This is a personality. The Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? He goes on to to say that that same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same power that's working in us. Listen, we're Baptists, right? Most of us who are here are Baptists. You start talking about the Holy Spirit, Baptists get nervous. And brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. 
particularly in the church age and the age where Peter started this sermon that launched this age, this establishment of the church, the launch of the first church in Jerusalem. The first place that he goes is to the Word of God and its prophecy specifically regarding the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and His work demonstrating the reality of God's plan coming to fruition. And we need to be those who treasure the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God in convicting us of sin, in opening our eyes to the fact that Jesus is the Savior, in cleansing us, in giving us, in enabling us to be a part of God's family. But then beyond that, in putting us together in the context of other believers to be built up into a building, a holy temple in which dwells the Holy Spirit, in which, in, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of. And beyond that, day by day, day by day, Guiding us, teaching us, making God's word alive to us. God in us. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. You see how we are sealed with the Spirit of God. He is our guarantee. There's so much that we could go into. I will not go into more than that this morning. Other than to say Peter's preaching and he says, Look, God has promised that His Holy Spirit will be poured out. Poured out and our relationship will be different. And again, when we get later in this sermon, we're going to see... That he tells them it's not limited to just us, the apostles, and you have to be supplicants. He's saying everyone who comes and repents will have the Holy Spirit of God, will be filled with the Spirit of God. There will be an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon you. And so we need to treasure the work of the Spirit. The Spirit was there in the temple courtyard. Thousands of people from all over, every tongue, tribe, and nation. Peter and the other twelve preaching and proclaiming the 120, the apostles speaking of the kingdom and the glories of God, the Holy Spirit was there and the Holy Spirit was there in might and power. And that's my prayer for you and for me, that we will not somehow make Christianity simply an academic exercise. It is academic. We are to study and to learn and to teach, but it is more than that. That we don't make Christianity simply a list of rules that we participate in, but we make we understand that Christianity is a relationship with a living God who indwells us. Some of you know, Suzanne and I are doing some work on the house, and man, isn't it fun. Uh, one of our joys has been uh, that we are doing this kind of along the way. You guys know what I'm talking about? We're going to do this part, and then we're going to do the next part, and then we're going to do the next part, and then we're going to do the next part. One of the the things that has been challenging is that we don't know exactly what the end result is going to be, but it's going to be great, hon. I keep telling her that. It's going to be great. And And we're both convinced that we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's going to look a whole lot better than all that stuff we do in the dumpster last week. I'm going to tell you that. It's going to be great. Now, this is an ongoing project, and again, I'm not going to equate this to the work of the Spirit, even though we easily could, as He continues to remodel us, if you will, as He makes what happened inside of us become the external expression of His life. But part of our challenge, day by day, is we don't know what the end result is exactly going to be. Now, granted, we've got a pretty good idea, and we know it's going to be great, but we don't know exactly what it's going to be. Let me tell you something. We serve a God who knows the end from the beginning. He knows every detail. 
As a matter of fact, not only does he know every detail, he is the architect of history. He is the creator, and he has guided and directs all things. And that's why we have over 300 times in the Old Testament specific prophecies that are fulfilled in the New Testament, knowing before, proclaiming that which is to come. And not only would that which was accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that which will be accomplished at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter referred to Joel, everybody there who was raised in Sabbath school, every Jewish person there who had been to the Old Testament. By the way, Peter didn't unroll a scroll and begin to preach. He quoted from Joel. When's the last time you memorized a verse from Joel? It was part of his breathing in and out of being immersed in Scripture. But Peter quoted from Joel. And the whole context of Joel, Joel says there is a locust invasion, like a plague in Egypt. And the crops are gone and we're going to undergoing famine. But here's what Joel's all about. There's something more is coming than this. There is coming, and this is like a tremor, the real earthquake's coming. And the earthquake that is coming is the day of the Lord. As a matter of fact, uh, that's what he's talking about when he changes the tone of his quote. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The Holy Spirit is coming to display what is coming next. That this soon and very soon is coming. What soon and very soon is coming? And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. That great and magnificent day. Do you know where Joel is in the Old Testament? Can I point you to Joel chapter 3? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Limitations, Major Prophets. Ezekiel, Daniel, Major Prophets. And then the shorter ones, Hosea. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Only three chapters. He's quoting the very end of chapter 2 there in Joel. Let's look at chapter 3 and see how he begins that. For behold, he says, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, there's coming this restoration time. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, most of us probably haven't used the word Jehoshaphat in our regular conversation in the last week or two. Uh, but can you, can you work that with me? What is, some of you may have said jump in Jehoshaphat, but that's a different, that's a different thing. Okay. Jeho is Jehovah. Shaphat, judgment, to judge. So the judgment of the Lord, the valley of the judgment of the Lord. And I will enter into judgment. There you go. With them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations. And they have divided up my land. He goes on to say. All the nations are going to be judged. No one's going to escape. These are those who have abused and scattered Israel. And he goes and lists the things that they have done. And he says. 
Those that are in rebellion against God. Those who have turned their backs upon God. Those who are saying no to the grace of God. Those who are, are thumbing their noses at God. It, it's the same idea in the Garden of Eden where he says you can eat any of any fruit except this one. And they go to that one and decide, yes, we're going to eat of this one. Those in rebellion are going to face judgment because they have transgressed the righteous and holy law of a holy God. And to be holy, he has to exercise judgment. He goes on, let's, we'll pick up in verse 9. Proclaim among the nations. He says, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, we like that the other way. Beat your swords into, pl- into plowshares and beat your spears into pruning hooks. But he says, no, there's going to be this tremendous conflict that's coming up. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come. All you surrounding nations, gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. He goes on, and later he calls this in verse 14, the valley of decision. Let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you what we need to rest in, what we need to have confidence in, what Peter is pointing them to in this text. First of all, we ought to treasure the work of the Holy Spirit, but we ought to trust in, we ought to rest in, we ought to celebrate God's kingdom plan. That in God's kingdom, He is going to establish His kingdom. And that's where I was headed in this passage of Scripture. The Lord is a refuge to His people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. And we see not only in chapter 2, but in chapter 3 of Joel, that God's kingdom will eternally be set up. It will be a place where there is no more war. After the judgment is complete, after the New Testament phrase, the great white throne judgment of God, God comes and establishes His kingdom. We can trust in the kingdom of God. We can trust in His kingdom plan. Not only His kingdom now, as the Lord Jesus Christ reigns in our hearts and His Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us and gives us wisdom and guides us and strengthens us. But that ultimately, one day, there will be peace. One day, there will be the Lion and the Lamb. One day, there will be an absence of war. One day, the King of kings and the Lord of lords will reign in perfection and we will be His citizenry. We're already citizens. We just have yet to occupy the land. And we need to be able to trust in God's kingdom plan. And when Peter stands up to preach, and he's preaching in Acts chapter 2, and he points them through pointing to the Gospel of Joel about the prophecy that is taking place and being fulfilled before them, and about the judgment that is to come. He goes where Joel goes, obviously. In verse 21 it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the amazing thing, that the grace of God is so evident in the Old Testament. Most of us don't get a whole lot of pleasure out of the Old Testament. Or at least that's the comments I get from our daily Bible reading discussions. How's Leviticus going for you? And some of us really struggle with some of that. And, and some of that, of course, I, I love Austin's call to worship this morning where we see how we're to pray and to be equipped to pray for those who lead. How I hope you pray for me and how we need to be praying for those who lead in our, in our government and other aspects of our life. But the Old Testament is filled with the grace of God. The patience of God. The long-suffering of God. And Joel's message is a message of coming judgment and an invitation to escape. 
coming judgment, there's coming a day when you will stand before a holy, righteous God and you will give an account. And only one of two things are going to happen. You will pay for the penalty of your sins or you will have repented from your sins, placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will have paid for the penalty of your sin. And that's the only options that there are. And we are extended grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, God moving and working, bringing His kingdom to fruition by, by, by populating it, by the expansion of grace, and by us as a church established. We are the church. We are those who are to be proclaiming this message. We are to amplify. We are to magnify. We are to celebrate. We are to sh- uh, shout forth. The grace of God. The third point on your outline. I want you to make sure that we are to be busy doing what Peter was doing, proclaiming the grace of God. I will tell you, I read an article this week someone gave me. And it was an article on uh, the tongues that were spoken in Acts chapter 2. And it mentioned some of the other miracles. And the article said, now this was not overtly evangelistic. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world... Is it not overtly evangelistic? The whole point of Acts chapter 2. The whole point of the pouring out of the Spirit of God. The whole point of the kingdom of God being proclaimed. Christ's death and resurrection being proclaimed. Is that the gospel is proclaimed. That lost people may be saved through the power of the Holy Spirit. That people who are spiritually dead may be brought to life. That people who are spiritually blind may have their eyes opened. It's what Peter's doing. It's what the 120 are doing. It's what the 12 are doing. What is the end result of this whole experience? 3,000 are saved that day. And daily the Lord is adding to the church those who should be saved. Now listen, if we trust in God's kingdom plan that there is going to be an eternal kingdom established and we're citizens of it, but preceding that there is going to be the day of judgment, the valley of decision, the, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the judgment of God against sin. We need to be in the business of warning people. We need to be in the business of letting people know that that day is coming and there is a way of escape that God has provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. I want, to, I want to talk about evangelism just for a moment. I talk about evangelism a lot. We need to be better evangelists in every aspect of our life. But there have been several times in my pastoral ministry that, I have been, uh, that I've gotten pushback on the gospel. Uh, one of them, I was pastoring a deaf church. And we were talking about man's need of salvation. I don't remember the exact sermon or sermon series that I was going through. But I had one of the members come and sit down in front of my desk. And he said, I have a problem with, with your gospel. And I said, oh, if I'm wrong, I want to know it. What, what is the problem? He said, well, if we want people to come, we need to talk about the benefits of being saved. I agree with that. He said, but you keep talking about how sinful everybody is. We need to let people know that God can improve their life, that God can fix their life, that God can... And I, and I said, brother, have, have you read the New Testament? What did Jesus tell his disciples? If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And that the goal of Christianity is not so that you can have a better life. The goal of Christianity is not so that somehow God can 
fix all your problems. The goal of Christianity is so that you can be snatched from the pits of hell. That you can be saved from the righteous judgment of a holy God. And there is a lot of good in that. We sing about the goodness of God. Amen. I love that song we sang this morning. I will sing of the goodness of God. But let me tell you something. The goodness of God doesn't matter to me if I don't recognize what I deserve. The goodness of God is not significant. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Yes, Jesus loves me. I'm so glad Jesus loves me. But here's the good news. Jesus loves me at, when I am unlovable. When I am still in sin, still an enemy, still ungodly, still turning my back upon Him. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay and God's here to make our life better and the gospel has come, follow us, and God will fix your problems or God will do this and God will do that as though He were here to serve us when we need to recognize that we have a Creator God who is holy and just. That we have sinful people who have turned their back against God and no one is exempt from that condemnation. And yet God makes a way. He has made a way through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And when we come to Him in repentance and faith, humility, I need Thee. I need Thee for salvation. I need Thee every hour. I need Thee. And we cast ourselves upon Him. Then He redeems us and He makes us new. And yes, there is joy. And yes, there is an inward peace regardless of external circumstances. And yes, we have the infilling and the indwelling and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. But the gospel is not, look at what God can do for us. The gospel is look at our need for a Savior. Would you agree with that? Are you good with that? When I was reading my experience with that guy and my experience with another person in, uh, in another congregation I was pastor of several years ago, came up to me after one of those sermons and said, oh, you're one of those guys, aren't you? I said, I, I don't know. What do you mean? He said, well, you're one of those guys who, uh, who talks about how bad people are and how we don't deserve anything but hell. And I said, yeah, I'm one of those guys. <laughs> he said, well, you know, he said, there's more to the gospel than that. There's more to Scripture than that. Then those two conversations came to mind as I was preparing for this sermon and I was reading a, a little booklet by Stephen Cole. I want to read his testimony. He said, years ago, this is Stephen Cole, years ago I was reading Charles Simeon, a great Anglican preacher from the early 19th century, and he stated that he had three aims in his preaching, to exalt the Savior, to humble the sinner, and to promote holiness. I thought that those were clear and godly aims, so in a sermon I shared that those were my aims also. I was somewhat startled when a woman who had been on staff for 25 years with a Christian evangelistic organization came to me and said, I don't agree with those aims. We don't need to be humbled. We need to hear more about how we're made in the image of God. Her comment reflects the man-centered focus of much modern evangelism. But the point of biblical evangelism is not to make people feel good about who they are or just to feel that God loves them just as they are. Rather, it is to show them who Jesus Christ truly is, the Lord of the universe, the Christ of God who offered himself for our sin and who was raised from the dead. It would show them who they are, sinners who crucified the Son of God, who are in danger of his impending judgment. It should show them God's great mercy that if they will repent 
and call upon the name of the Lord, he will save them from his judgment. It should show them the need to live in obedience to him, no matter what the cost. Peter, just a regular guy, filled with the Spirit of God. Stands up and begins to preach, pointing to the eternal word of God. Gifted and filled with the spirit of God proclaims great truth. And where he starts is what God has always said is true. His prophecies are real. The first are these signs and wonders are the same thing that we already heard about centuries ago. Coming true before your eyes. And just as these things are true, there is a day of judgment that has been prophesied. And it is equally true. And you're going to stand before God on that day of judgment. And you're going to stand there with the best that the flesh has to offer and recognize it falls far short of God's righteousness. And you're going to be consigned in the valley of decision to eternal punishment. But God has made a way of escape. God sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us. And we need to understand He loved us not because we were somehow lovely, but while we were enemies of God, ignoring God, making our own decisions, going our own way, making ourselves our own God, He still loved us. And came and died on the cross. Not so that He could love us as we are, but so that He could make us new. So that He could make us His. So that He could cleanse us and come and live inside of us. The gospel is not a sales pitch for your best life. The gospel is a warning about a coming judgment and the proclamation that God has made a way of escape. That God gives life. That God gives life eternal through His Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? If you're saved, there ought to be some shouting ground around here somewhere. Good news. Good news. Here's the challenge. Who are you telling? Who are we telling? It's hard to talk about judgment. It's a whole lot easier to say, God loves you. Here, read this track. All right, God loves you, and I do too. And we, we keep it at a superficial level. We need to love people enough to tell them judgment's coming against sin and that God has made a way that all the wrath of God fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His death is sufficient for you. But what does it require? It requires repentance. What is repentance? It's owning your sin before a holy God, confessing it to Him, and surrendering your life to Him. So this is an evangelistic sermon. Why would this be an evangelistic sermon? Because we're studying the sermon that launched the New Testament church. And it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has accomplished. What is the application for us? We treasure the Spirit of God. We trust in God's kingdom plan. And we proclaim, we carousa, we're like Peter. Go out there and lift up your voice and talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will do His job. 
We need to be filled with him and allow him to do his job through us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege to just celebrate the goodness of God. And we do sing of the goodness of God. Father, I'm grateful for the deep, deep love of Jesus. I'm grateful for your faithfulness, even when we are faithless. I'm grateful that your goodness chases after us. I'm grateful that it is through the goodness of God that you call men to repentance, that you display that. Father, I pray that we will not miss the important, significant truth of Scripture that there is judgment against sin. That there is the consequence of sin that we experience in this life now, but there is a day of judgment coming. And there are only two categories of people on that day. There are those who have repented of their sin and placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who will stand before you and will be able to acknowledge that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, not through our own effort, but through the grace of God as we placed our our faith and trust and gave our life to Him. Father, there are so many who have not yet done that. There are many who don't understand it. There are many who reject it, who are going their own way. And we need to be those vessels, those preachers, if you will, those who caruso, those who proclaim, those who lift up our voices to let people know, yes, God is good, but God is good and His grace is amazing because of the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves without hope apart from you, separated from God by sin, and we need the Savior. So help us to convey that. Help us to be used by your Holy Spirit to see lives changed and transformed. Father, we love you. We trust you. In your name I pray. Amen.